Um, today we're looking at Mark 10, verses 32 through 45, um, and uh, the, the basic idea here, maturity in Christ. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, a lot of us as Christians, we really want to go deep into God, and we want to grow deep in maturity, uh, but I think today we're going to see that uh, the things that are acquired as we go deep in maturity with God are honestly the really hard things that a lot of us, uh, I don't know, weasel out of, at least I know I do <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, and so I want to encourage us in that today. So I'm going to read the whole section, and then we'll kind of go back, look section by section. If you haven't been with us, um, we are going through the book of Mark, um, and we're going, uh, you're going to learn a fancy fancy term here, we're going exegetically through um, through this book, which means we don't just kind of choose topics that we want to talk about, we just go through and let the word of God speak for itself. And so we're going to we're gonna go section by section through this and, and just try to see what God has for us today. You can follow along up here or in your own Bibles. I think this is the ESV um, translation. But uh, So it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Uh, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so the big idea we're looking at today is that the path to greatness and the path to maturity in Christ is through suffering, service, and through humility. Again, the path to greatness and to maturity in Christ is through suffering, service, and humility. So um, let's look at this first section. Uh, this first section, um, you know, the title says, uh, Jesus foretells his death a third time. So there are two other times before this where Jesus foretold that he was going to die. He was going to be, uh, be um, beaten and he was going to suffer. Right, this this one, this third time, it's a little bit different. It's a little longer than the other sections, and most commentators kind of say that the thing that's kind of unique about this one is the language. He says, "We are going up, right? We will be delivered." And so they say that the language here is that here, the the, the other two times, it's entirely passive; it's all done to him. But here in this section, he is like walking into it. You know, the son, the, the, Jesus says, um, no one took his life. He laid it down. And I think that's, that's really important that Jesus' sacrifice was voluntary. 
It wasn't accidental. He got there and then he got kind of got trapped. This was the plan all along, right? Um, but uh, though, and sorry, I got distracted. Um, so the thing, the thing that I wanted to kind of take a second though um, in this section and consider is that a lot of times, I think for most of us who have been walking with the Lord, we would say that over time, uh, our our Christian life and like as where God takes us, it looks different than we expected. And that's the same for the disciples, right? Uh, but I think, um, I think that throughout Jesus' ministries, you know, we see that he, he warns people that they will be persecuted. You will go through many trials. You'll suffer many things for my name. But I think that the church in the West, um, more and more so, there's this, been this growing, uh, kind of belief. It's been, been a part of the church. Most of us have probably heard the title of the prosperity gospel, right? And most of us probably reject it. Flat out. And the prosperity gospel, what it says is it suggests that, um, if we follow God, then, um, then we will receive, our lives will be stable. Our lives will have financial prosperity. We'll have like money and wealth, right? And that, um, that really we'll be like, we'll experience like worldly happiness. And, and there's not a lot of indication in that scripturally, right? Um, and honestly, the, the prosperity gospel suggests that if you are, are not wealthy and your life isn't stable and looking good in the world standards, that maybe your faith is suspect, right? Maybe you don't have enough faith, right? But Jesus, in, in his ministry, and then we see in the New Testament, it's kind of the opposite. It's that if you have great wealth, your faith is suspect, right? Those are the people who maybe it's easiest to be in sin, they seem to suggest, right? And if we look at the, the lives of of the the people in the new testament and early christians we we see i think i think if we talk to them now and they heard the prosperity gospel it would just be so foreign to them they'd be like what are you talking about like we're supposed to be rich whenever we become christians we, we weren't rich in the first place and now everybody hates us even more right i think i think it would just be so foreign to them right um and and why do i say all this um i, I do think that sometimes when we come to christ you know we become more honest, more caring, more um, more people with more integrity. And so sometimes those things can happen. In businesses, people are more likely to trust us when we deal honestly than when we don't, right? And so I think those things could happen, but we're definitely not guaranteed those things. Um, there's a quote. Um, let me, sorry, put this down. Uh, there's a quote from Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary to India, and she said, have you ever gone through the New Testament marking the places where suffering in one form or another is mentioned? It's wonderfully enlightening. The book is full of joy, but it's also full of pain. And pain is taken for granted, right? Meaning everyone who's following Christ, it's taken for granted that you'll experience pain, right? Um, the, uh, think it not strange. Count it all joy. Those are, those are some examples of scripture where it says, count it not all joy when you experience trials of many kinds, right? Um, we are meant to follow in Jesus' steps, not to avoid them. Um, what if our suffering is caused by those whom we love? Wasn't his caused by them, those who he loved? And I, I think there's lots of questions just like that we could answer. Well, well, my suffering, it, you know, they made me seem like somebody I wasn't. You know, it was totally unjust. It's like, well, wasn't Jesus' suffering, un- wasn't his unjust? What if, well, well, mine was, uh, you know, we could come up with all these, these potential statements. But I feel like every one we come up with, uh, Jesus kind of like trumps those statements with what he went through, right? Um, she goes on to say, oh, what a book the Bible is. If only we steep our soul in its mighty comfort, we can't go far wrong, and we shall never lose heart. To this you were called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You will find that the joy of the Lord comes as you go on in the way of the cross. Okay, and so I say this, I don't think probably most of us here um, probably like subscribe to the prosperity gospel, but I do think it, it creeps into our thinking, right? Um, I, I would imagine most of us at one time have gone through a period of doubting, and a lot of times it's been caused by suffering, right? We, maybe a loved one passes away or our prayers aren't answered the way we want. And I, I know that's, that's the case for me, so I'm not like pointing fingers here. Like, and then I begin to doubt. And I just want to suggest right, that maybe we, um, we hold our hearts up to God to be refined and say, you know, am I, what, do, what are my expectations for living like a Christian, what it's going to look like, right? Because if we're following in the path of Christ, I think, I think potentially, right, it's easy for us to think it's going to look like something it's not. And, and Jesus tells us to count the cost, right? Now, we see in our culture lots of, like, high-profile figures who, like, who um, have left the faith. And a lot of times it's because they see brokenness in, this, in their lives or in this world. And I think, um, you know, a little bit of that prosperity gospel has kind of crept into our, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So um, just wanted to throw that out there, um, something we can think about. Um, so uh, let's jump in. I really like this next section. So I'm, I'm really excited. Let's, let's jump in. Um, so it's uh, starting 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's just a, a great prayer. I, it's like, I just imagine my children coming up to me asking that prayer. You know, it's like, I know it's coming. Uh, right. Um, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Right? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in glory. Uh, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? That's a fun sentence. Uh, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the, with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Uh, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So um, I love this. Uh, one, one scholar, John Stott, he says, this request of James and John surely qualifies for inclusion in the Guinness Book of World Records as the worst prayer ever prayed, right? And we can like kind of hear that and laugh. And then I start thinking about some of the prayers that I've prayed. And I'm like, well, I might, I might give him a run for his money, right? Uh, as the worst prayer. Because our prayers look like this a lot, right? And, but, and, and John Stott explains, what's, what does he say is, is make, qualifies this as the worst prayer? He says, this prayer is an attempt to bend God's will to ours, whereas true prayer involves the surrender of our will to God's, right? And I, and I want to be I want to be careful because I, I I asking God for things like God's our Father, right? When we come to Him in prayer, we can ask Him for anything, right? We can come with small things, and so I'm not saying never go to God and ask for like help and comfort and for right, but. I do think, uh, the, this, the, when these guys come before Jesus, they're not, they're, they're, they're definitely, their hearts are not in the right place. Okay. Um, I still remember this one time when I was in high school and, uh, I was kind of like a, a new believer and I had, we, we went to pray for someone at, a, I think it was at a hospital. Um, and they had some terminal illness. I'm not sure what it was. Um, but, uh, when we got there, uh, we were praying for this person and one person, um, they just go up and they, they, instead of like praying for their healing, which is kind of everybody else's, you know, pray for, pray for the healing. They go up and they say, Lord, I pray that, 
um, you know, Miss So-and-so, that uh, she would be uh, firm in her faith in the midst of suffering and that uh, her suffering would bring you glory. And I was like, how rude that she would possibly not pray for this lady's healing. What, what is going on here? She's a religious nut, right? Uh, and and uh, <laughs> But then it kind of stuck with me in the next few days. I, I was just like thinking and I was like, man, I think... I think that was probably the best prayer I've ever heard. Doggone it. Like, and, and I think, I think that our prayers, um, and so I, I guess I just, I just, again, another thing I just want to put to you. What does your prayer life look like? Take a second. Think about some of the, the most recent prayers you've prayed, right? Have they been, God, give me this. God, um, accomplish this for me, right? Or have they been, God, like, help me, like, like, teach me to be obedient in the midst of whatever you bring, right? And again, I'm, I'm not saying we can't pray for things, but I think um, as we're talking about Christian maturity, I think as we grow in maturity, our desire will be more and more for God's way and less and less for our way, right? Um, but uh, I, this is the other part I really like. I want, I want, to, I want to look, what is this, this, this prayer um, and Jesus' response say about James and John? What does it say about Jesus? Okay, a couple things. One, about James and John, this says that they were very, very ambitious, right? They, they like had such a desire to be something, to be important, to be right in the, in the, in the midst of the most important things in the universe, right? They're, they're, they're saying, we want to be at the center of the universe right on the outside of you, right? Um, so uh, some people say this is because James and John were the richest of the disciples, we don't really know. We, we do know that whenever James and John, whenever Jesus called them, he called them from their father, and it said their father had hired hands. So some people say, oh, well, maybe they were richer. So they thought that they were just a little bit better than everyone else, right? They thought, oh, well, I should take this, this position. So some people say that, but we don't really know. But ultimately, the thing that I think is really cool is Jesus never, like, rebukes them for their ambition. He never says, you shouldn't desire to be great. Right? He never says, hey, slow down. You just need to calm down a little bit. You're asking, you're, you're going way, way too far. He just commonly, he just like very calmly rebukes him and says, you don't know what you're asking for. Right? But as we continue to go through this, this passage, Jesus encourages us to follow after our ambition. Right? If, uh, I think, you know, we have a lot of people who are parents here. As our kids are, are, are growing up, ambition should should never be like put down we just should calmly like instruct in what how to like channel true ambition to really accomplish something that matters right i mean i really love that i love jesus's like calm response towards that of instruction okay so one it says that james and john are really ambitious two it says that james and john completely misunderstood the basic part of jesus message right the basic fundamentals of jesus message they are completely off right and um, one, sorry, uh, I think this, this part right here, if we can just take a second and think about Jesus, right? It just speaks to Jesus's complete loneliness and isolation, right? Um, he is on his way to go suffer and lay down his life. He's literally on the road to go to Jerusalem. And these are the people who are closest to him. Even among the disciples, John was one of like the inner group, you know, um, the, the inner three, right? And so these are the people closest to Jesus and they have no idea, right? Just imagine how much that would have hurt, right? That would have been 
so painful. But, man, I'm so encouraged and challenged by Jesus' example that even in the midst of, like, extreme pain, maybe feeling betrayed, his response is that of, like, patience and care and instruction. Again, sorry, uh, this is in my mind. I'm just like, man, as a parent, I am such a failure. You know, my daughter, like, gets up from her nap five minutes early. I'm like, hey, you get back out there, you know? Uh, and, and these people, like, just completely misunderstand the basic core of his message, and he just, like, treats them with grace and kindness. Um, and it's just such a challenge, honestly. Um, yeah, so, uh, and the, the last thing I, I wanted to mention um, is that about James and John, what does it say about James and John? Is that even though they completely misunderstand, they're mostly focused on their ambition, they're still there, right? They haven't left Jesus. They, I mean, they're asking to sit at his right and left hand, so they still somehow associate this homeless carpenter with the glory of God, right? And they haven't left. And I think, I think it's, it's a huge encouragement to me is that really these guys are just totally immature, right? But they showed up, right? And Jesus' response is to treat them with, with patience and instruction. No, this is, this is how you go about this. This is, this is how you do this. And man, I just, I just am so grateful that in my immaturity, my continued immaturity, God is just so patient with me and he's, and he's patient with you. Right. Um, and, and I think, I think, you know, that encourages us. It lets us see the goodness of Jesus. And, uh, as we deal with others and their immaturity, like what's, what's going to really be effective? Should we like get out of here? I, he, he, Jesus doesn't turn away from them. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't chastise them. He just patiently instructs them. And, and that's hard. That's really hard when we see immaturity. As a teacher, I see immaturity and I just want to crush it. You know, <laughs> I just want to take the opportunity to, you don't know what you're talking about. High school students think they know everything, right? But so do we. So let's be real. Uh, to, to Jesus, we are the high school students, um, right? Uh, but he's just so patient and kind, and I love that. Um, so um, as we go on, there, there's a couple things. Um, when Jesus talks about the baptism and the cup, that can, that can seem kind of like this fancy language, but it's pretty simple. Um, this uh, commentator, William Barclay, he says, it's the custom at a royal banquet for the king to hand a cup to his guests. And over time, uh, the cup had become a metaphor for like, the life, the experience, the lot that God handed out to men. We, we, we read it earlier in Psalm 23, um, and I think it's verse 6, where he says, um, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. He's saying, God has given me so much, right? Um, and, and just to kind of harken back to the whole thing about suffering, if he's, he's in the midst of his enemy, he's probably suffering, but somehow his cup is still overflowing in the midst of his suffering, right? But, and, but just as God hands out like blessings and in, in, in Isaiah 51, he uses that, that word cup again, like the people of God, the Israelites had rebelled against God and they had like this, continually worshiped idols and God punished them. And it says the people had uh, in Psalm 51, 17, drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. And so cup has come to just mean the lot that God gives out to men, right? And women. Um, and so, uh, but then also the baptism, sometimes we hear that word baptism. We're like, what is it talking about? Like when Jesus was baptized, you know, we have a lot of like thoughts about baptism in the church, but for them at that point, baptism just meant like submersion. Like, and he's saying, are you prepared to be just totally submerged in hatred and pain like me. And, and James and John, they're, oh, yeah, yep, sure we are, right? It shows that they have no idea. It just, like, goes to underscore that they're, like, totally lost, right? Um, 
let me, I keep on losing stuff here. Um, so, um, did I, I'm, um, but so, so I guess ultimately the thing, the thing that, um, also stick out, you know, it sticks out when we, we're looking at Jesus in this passage, we see his, like his patience, his kindness, his instruction towards James and John, but also ultimately we see that the thing that is kind of like rooting him is his obedience to the father, right? And his response to, to their request, he just says, well, first he says, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, and then, but then he goes on to say, like, that's not for me to offer you. Like, it's kind of crazy that in the midst of like extreme pain, not only can Jesus be kind and gentle, but he also, he doesn't like say, why well, I'm going to take this one thing for me and give my boys the seats, right? That's not, he, he doesn't, he doesn't like claim these things for us. He doesn't have um, entitlements, he just says, no, he, he trusts God to do, to do what's best. And, and he, 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 he points to God in that moment. And I, I think that's, again, really, really challenging for us. So let's go to this final section. Um, we're we're going to get crazy here in a second. So it says, um, when the 10 heard it, the 10, that's the other disciples, um, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is like one of the the greatest uh, sections in all of the Bible. Um, And and a lot of people say that this is the... um, kind of the pinnacle of Mark in some ways. Um, and so one thing that I think is kind of funny, I, I, I think a good practice when you're reading the Bible is to imagine what was going on, right? Just to kind of imagine, kind of just picture it all, right? So you see James and John, they kind of come over like, hey, Jesus, can we talk to you over here for a second? Right? And they kind of go over to the side. Obviously, they don't want the other disciples to hear them. They're like, hey, and they ask him this thing. But one of, one of the, the other disciples, I imagine him, when they kind of take Jesus aside, they already know James and John are kind of like this. So they're like, wait, what are they doing over there? And, and he kind of, you know, he's chopping wood or something. You know, listen over there. And he hears, and then he's like, oh, my gosh. He goes over, hey, Andrew. You know, he's telling these other guys, and they're all like, what in the world is going on? And, and Jesus sees that this is just getting out of hand. And I think it's really funny that everybody's getting offended. I can just imagine this whole fight. Everybody's the only person who's not offended is the one person who has the right to be, right? The only person who should be offended is Jesus, but everybody else is, is so offended. And the reason the other disciples are offended is probably because they're like, oh, we should have done that. We should have asked him first, right? Um, but I, I, think, I think it just, again, just a little side note, I think it says something about Christian maturity. That there's something about not being offended. There was, there's, I heard this story once. I actually don't even know if it's true, but I'll throw it out there anyways. Um, that there was a pastor who retired at the end of 40 years and he was at this big like party and they asked him, what's the secret? What's the secret to 40 years of ministry, of successful ministry? And he says, keep yourself from being offended. Right? And I, I think, you know, so there's, there you go, Keith. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm probably offending you right now. But, and, and for, for those, those of, uh, we're all in ministry right? There's not, there's not one minister at this church. We are all like servants of God. We're all priests, right? In the royal priesthood. Um, and so the thing to keep us in ministry successfully is to keep ourselves from being offended. That's, that's, I mean, there's other stuff too, but that's, um, I think that's, that's a, a real maybe spiritual secret. Um, but, um, this passage, um, 
it makes some significant changes, right? And this isn't the first time kind of Jesus talked about some of this, but I think it's the summation of a few changes that, that, um, that Jesus makes. And so I want to look at three of those changes. Okay, the first one is this changes the path of greatness, the path of greatness from what was understood as power and independence to service and dependence, right? In the Roman Empire, Jesus already said, that people lorded their power over other people. There was this one emperor. Uh, you probably heard of Emperor Nero. He was the guy who like killed all the Christians and was crazy and stuff. He, he committed suicide. And the guy who was emperor right after him, his name was Emperor Galba. He was only, only emperor for a year. But uh, he was quoted as saying, what it means to be emperor is that you can tell anyone to do anything and they can't do anything about it. That's what it means to be emperor. Right? That's, that's, that's the definition of greatness is that you're, a, you're, the, you're the lion, right? And then the whole food chain, you're at the very top. Nobody can do anything about what you say. They have to obey, right? That's what greatness is, right? And Aristotle, he was a, a Greek philosopher, kind of established a lot of like thoughts. His idea of greatness was a person who was like needed nothing from anyone, independence, right? Someone who could, he, he said, he said it's somebody who would give, right? Give things to other people. But if anyone gave something to you, you're no longer great, right? Their idea of God was this unmoved mover, the one who always gave stuff to other people but never took anything for themselves. And so that was, that was kind of intrinsic in their understanding of greatness, that true greatness meant to be completely independent. And that's kind of how people in antiquity saw greatness, as if you had all the power and you needed no one. But here, Jesus says the true path to greatness is through service, right? And I, I think through some of this other stuff we're looking at, we, would, we could also add dependence, right? Jesus, like, desired relationship with people, right? He, 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 women supported Jesus in his ministry, right? Jesus was supported, he was homeless and supported by, like, these traveling women. Like, even today, that's offensive to people. Think about in the antiquity, right? Um, and I, 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 I love this quote from Kent Dunnington. It says, Christianity's radical claim was that neediness, weakness, and meekness are not obstacles to flourishing, but rather they are avenues, to flourishing. I, re- I really love that quote. Um, he just blew all their understanding out of the water um, and turned the things over. So that's, that's the first um, major change. Okay. The second change, which I think is related, but I, I, I want to I take it a little, little ways and, and look at it. Oh, wrong way. Uh, second, second change that he brought about is what are the virtues that we pursue as Christians, right? From before, okay, in the Roman Empire, and even today in a lot of ways, um, pride and achievement, success, worldly success were like the things to pursue. But Jesus now says the, the highest virtues are humility and charity, charity being like love, love and kindness to others, right? Um, and um, I think it's interesting. I was looking at this and I was like, humility, the highest virtue? Um, but uh, I think a lot of people throughout Christian history would, would agree. And actually, um, humility really before Jesus, it was like talked about by like just a few people. The only, the only people who really talked about it, we have Jews who talked about it occasionally in the Old Testament, talk about humility, but it's definitely not like a central virtue. And then you have like occasional people who mentioned it. But um, Jesus brings it to the center of the Christian life, right? And actually the word humility, um, it comes from, there was this class of people in the Roman Empire called the humiliores. They were the lowest class of society, the class that no one wanted to be, the poorest people who essentially needed all the help and could give none, right? They were the class that everyone tried to escape. And that word humiliaris is where we get humility. And it's also the word we get humiliating from, right? 
That's, that was their idea of humility. Humility was humiliating, right? Um, but then Jesus comes along, and, and within a couple hundred years, St. Augustine said almost the whole of Christian teaching is humility. Even if we, as we go on to um, the Reformers, John Calvin said, there's no access to salvation unless all pride is laid aside and true humility is embraced. And Martin Luther, I was actually kind of shocked when I read this quote, because, you know, Martin Luther was the champion of sole, sole fide, like, only by faith alone we're saved. But he said that humility is so crucial that it's like two sides to one coin, faith and humility. You can't separate them. That he said, humility alone saves. This is the guy who was willing to die for the, for the phrase, faith alone saves. He, he wouldn't say, you know, anything about, but he, he said this other thing also, right? It's, it's, I was just like shocked by that, right? Um, humility is such a central, um, virtue for Christians, right? Um, let me make sure I'm not going crazy here. So I'd, I'd like to take a second though, and define humility, okay? Because um, I think it, it gives us a little more to work with. So um, I want you to think for a second, who is the person in your life who you can think of who's the most humble? Let's take a second, the most humble person you know. Think about who that might be. And think about what are the qualities that, that do they have that make you think they're very humble? Okay, so I've got, when I think of humility, there's a few people, I actually think Andrew's really humble, and David record race, but I I think I'm going to say my dad is maybe the most humble person I know, okay, and some of the qualities that I associate with him, my dad is constantly giving to people, constantly giving to people, and he never feels taken advantage of. I have no idea how he does it. I like give people half of my cookie and I'm like, they better appreciate that. You know, like my dad just gives and gives and gives and he's like pretty successful business person and you would never know it. He never says anything about it. He, he makes, he's, he's a, 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 an attorney who um, practices social security law. So people who are like at the bottom of their luck, social security, they can't, they can't draw from social security. He's there helping them and you would never know. Right. Um, also, it is, it is like ridiculously hard to get this guy angry, right? I, I should know. I'm, I'm an infuriating human being. And, and it is really hard to make him angry. He's just so patient and kind and he's constantly giving. And he's, he, he, he's, um, I was gonna say he's really humble, but that's the definition of humble. Uh, he, he doesn't try to do things that he's not good at. He's very quick to admit his weaknesses, his limitations. And, and he, but, but he'll, he'll try to help people nonetheless, but he's very quick to admit, um, these weaknesses. So, and I imagine what the person you thought of probably had some of those similar qualities, right? I imagine some, some of those. So, but, um, so modern philosophers have kind of like talked about what is humility. And so we're just going to use their definition. I kind of made them Christian a little bit, but, um, there's two kind of main things and they, they debate which one is more central, but they say, these are the two qualities that are essential, the, the core of humility. So one is proper unconcern for yourself, right? Not like, you know, if somebody like, if you get a lobotomy, they cut off like part of your brain or something. And then suddenly you like, don't think about yourself. It's not that it's not like someone who like doesn't think about themselves because they lack the brain capacity or something like that. This is a proper, proper unconcern yourself. The humble person has an especially low level or concern about her worth, her skills, her achievements, status, and entitlements because of an intense concern for God and his purposes, right? It's not that they just like don't care about themselves. It's they care about God. They they love God so much that it looks like they don't care about themselves, right? It looks like they're like not worried about the nice things in their house because they're concerned with God's glory, right? Um, 
So that's one. The other one is, is proper limitations owning, right? So proper understanding and acceptance of one's limitations. Um, and that's the humble person ex- owns his limitations and is undisturbed by them, gladly accepting of their dependence. He does his best to control and minimize negative effects of his limitations, but ultimately recognizes that limitations make it possible for us to enter into a dependent relationship with God, right? And the reason, the reason I go through that whole process to define these things is because, I don't know, for me, sometimes I can, I can be like, I'm a pretty humble guy, right? But then when I actually really define it, I'm like, yeah, I'm not either of those things, even like a smidgen, right? Um, I, I, my, my wife, she was like, well, maybe that's right, right? Uh, so, uh, like, when we really define stuff, it's harder for us to wheeze a lot of it. And so um, I, think, I think that's one reason it's maybe important to define it. But the other reason I really wanted to um, define it, uh, if I can see where I am here, sorry. Um, so another reason is because I think we have inherited this value of humility through like the Christian culture that we've like been a part of here in the United States and churches and stuff. But we've also inherited some other values, right? And I think sometimes as Christians, uh, as, as proposed Christians, we kind of look bipolar, we can teach our children, and at church we can really exalt humility. But then when we go into work, whenever we, um, we're around, <laughs> for me a lot of times when I'm around my children, when we're in different situations, we feel like hum- humility is useless. It's actually like taking away because it's stopping us from getting ahead in life, right? Um, and I think, I think we kind of go back and forth. We don't know which, you know, when do we use this one? Sometimes we don't really like humility, even though we say that it's important, right? And I wanted to, uh, just a slight, again, little, little thought in history is that, um, you know, again, throughout, throughout Christendom, right, there was a lot of times humility wasn't practically valued, but it was, it was honored as the, as the, one of the chief virtues, right, for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, but then in, in, in modernism, right, secular humanist modernism, which is, um, increasingly the culture that we live in, okay, um, humility is not a valued uh, virtue. Humility, um, one, one philosopher, David Hume, says it's a monkish virtue that has no value. Um, oh, wait, no, not that one. Sorry, we'll get there a um, He says it has no value. And the reason why um, is because the values that, that secular humanism proposes is, is usefulness and proper, he would say, a proper level of pride in your achievements. He says, yeah, we should do stuff and we should be proud of what we do, right? Um, and that's the thought. But all of our virtues, they're just byproducts of what our ultimate goal is, right? And for, for secular humanists, they don't, they don't, they're not seeing like an eternal reality. So for them, all there is is this world. And, and humanism, by definition, it says, it says the purpose of humanism is to like achieve human flourishing and the least amount of suffering, right? We've already talked about one, suffering being something that brings us towards God. So Christians maybe would reject that. But human flourishing as defined as like on earth, us getting the most happiness we can have, right? And as Christians, we would say uh, maybe their understanding of human flourishing is wrong. And act, but regardless, the, the, the goal of Christians is not just a, like worldly human flourishing. The goal of Christians is eternal union with Christ, right? And so... So if we're trying to seek eternal union with Christ, that, that humanist value of, of achievement, of worldly success, of pride in, in our achievements, that's something that's going to like 
pull us away from union with God because we're so focused on ourselves and our achievements that we can't just be completely enthralled by God, right? Um, and so, uh, again, kind of like I was saying earlier, the reason I say all this is because I think even though we, we say we follow God, we say like humility is this good virtue, Christians, myself very much included, feel this like draw back and forth between these two values. We're like, I really want humility, but um, there's a promotion coming up. So I'm going to leave that to the side. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to show everybody how great I am. And I'm going to downplay how great everybody else is, right? Instead of seeking to serve others, right? And promote them, we seek self-promotion, right? And so um, again, all that I just, I just wanted to focus on because I think this weird explanation going through all this, it just shows why we waffle back and forth. Um, between uh, like a, a highly valuing the virtue of humility and then also seeing it as useless at times. Um, so, but that being said, oh, and 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 again, I wanted to also just mention that that ultimately, right, as Christians, we believe that following the way of Christ is what will bring about the most human flourishing, right? Uh, it's it's the classic: seek first the kingdom of God, and these all these things will be added to you, right? Like Jesus says that it's through service we will be great. It's very easy to not believe that in the world, right? But um, for Christians, we believe that it's true. Um, so, uh, but I think a lot of times it's really difficult to actually, to actually like implement. Like I can get really jazzed. I hear like a sermon, I'm like, I'm going to go serve. And then like a week later, I'm like, I don't know, sitting eating popcorn, watching TV or something, right? That, right? So um, what are a few practical steps we can take to move towards service? Please, someone say you've seen this meme, so I'm not just a weirdo. Just do it. Okay, so this guy just has this, this, this video where he just shouts, just do it at people. Um, but uh, thank you. Uh, so a couple things. How do we move our hearts into service and humility? Because sometimes it's hard. So one, just, just do it. Start serving. I was actually talking with Keith the other day. I was like, what are, you know, when Keith, goes and he's like eating meals at a restaurant. He'll like ask to pray for the, our waiter, um, or talk to them about God or, and, and, and I was like, what, like, do you always feel like doing that? Like, um, and he's, and he said, he said no. Um, and, but he says, what is the thing that like gets him, like moves him from a place of like warm heartedness towards serving humility? He said, if you just start doing it, it's like you're jumping in this stream and you just feel that it's good and it's right. And you want to do it more. Right. Um, so one thing, just really practical, just start serving. And, and we're made to love that. This is what we're made for as Christians. And I think as we do that, a lot of times we'll find how great that is. Another thing, like we said, know what you're chasing. Remember, what is our end goal? Is our end goal like worldly achievement? Making sure, um, you know, we um, are taking care of all of our needs and more. Or is our end goal union with Christ? It's the classic, what does God care more about? happiness or holiness. Um, and so uh, as we, as, if we can fix our eyes on that goal, like, then I think that'll help us. But then also I think the, the long-term answer to how do we like, move our hearts towards service and humil- humility is um, essentially um, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that as we behold, as we contemplate the glory of Christ, that we, our lives will be transformed, right? That we'll actually love that. And, um, and I think... I think that that's ultimately like from the inside out being changed by loving and seeing Jesus um, is ultimately the answer to that question. Um, so, um, so that's our first first two. Sorry, I took it really long on that second one. So the first one was about path to greatness. Here we see um, the virtues, but the last one is what is the problem 
in the world. Okay, what is the problem in the world? Um, and it, it, went, it shifted from people seeing power dynamics as the major problem in the world to Jesus saying the major problem we have is separation from God, right? And, and antiquity people in like the Roman Empire, for them, power dynamics meant, meant people just trying to climb that ladder. They're trying to get power so they're not at the very bottom. They're not those humiliores. But today, increasingly more and more and more in our society, in secular humanist society, it's seen that the explanation for why we have bad things in the world is because certain people exploit other people because they have power. And that's true. Like, people do exploit other people, and certain people do have more power than other people. That is a reality. However, Jesus says that the ultimate problem, the thing that is more fundamental than simply just, just, um, like, if he see, essentially, I think what he's saying is, like, says to our culture is that if we distributed power equally among society, we would probably see it go back to, to, to really, like, messed up power dynamics to sin within, like, not very, not very long. Because the ultimate problem is sin, is separation from God. It's not just unequal power dynamics, although those are real. But, but honestly, we actually see Jesus address that in, in the, and sorry, this Tim Keller quote, Jesus reverses the power dynamics of the world. We see that in this, in this last one is that power dynamics, there, there are certain people with more power, but the person with the most power, with all the power in the universe came and gave up that power, right? And so the power dynamics have fundamentally shifted. And so not that we shouldn't work to, to try to help those who are in need, help those who are exploited, but the most fundamental problem in society, in the universe, is separation from God, right? Um, so um, this last verse, right, it's the pinnacle, the key to everything. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, okay? And, and this verse has throughout... Uh, Christian history, there have been giant theological theories that have been constructed based on this, this single verse, on this particular on the word ransom and what that means. And we're not really going to go really deep into, into all of that today. Um, but I, I want to look at a few like practical things. Okay. So one, before, before we even talk about any, any theological implications, ultimately, this is a verse that shows an act of love, right? We can create theological like understanding of, of what does this mean for us, but ultimately this is about the love of Christ poured out for us, right? Um, and that's 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 the baseline to everything else we can understand about this verse or, or um, about this idea. Um, but it does say one: what was our state? If we had to be ransomed, that means that we were slaves, right? We we were in a place where we like could not get out. Think about it. A slave is completely at the mercy of their master. They're unable to free themselves. And that is what Christ says about us, right? Um, so what was our state? We were slaves, okay? What does it say about Jesus's worth, okay? So this shows, you know, Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. This shows that Jesus was more than any other man who ever existed, Right? If somebody walks in here and they say, I'm going to shoot Chad, and I jump in front and take the bullet, it's not, it's not going to free him from sin. He may be grateful, but it's, but it's not going to free him from sin. I, can't, I cannot do that. This shows that Jesus is God, right? It reveals that, right? Um, but also, it shows that it, it, this is, this, in addition to showing that Jesus is different from every human, this shows that Christianity is different from every other religion. There is no other religion where God 
is humble, where God lays down his life, right, for us. This is, this is one of the unique things about Christianity, right? I completely lost this. Uh, so, uh, and then last, what does it mean for, for believers? It means that if we have been ransomed, then we now belong to God, right? So we can, we can mess up, we can do stuff, but ultimately we no longer are slaves to sin. We are now, we now belong to God. He has purchased us and set us free. We are now belong to him. And so um, I think, um, yeah, I I won't, won't, uh, sorry, I I always keep on trying to say extra stuff. Um, So, and and I I just want to mention, okay, sorry, uh, that ultimately, I think it's this, this verse for me personally, there was, there was a time, uh, I think some of y'all know about it, I went through some really, really challenging stuff in my I was loosely involved in like a, a, a um, really unhealthy body um, and and ended up with someone passing away, someone dying, um, and a lot of really messed up stuff kind of came to the surface. And I really questioned everything in my faith, right? I really, really struggled, um, questioned everything and, and struggled with doubt for a while. And the thing that really like anchored me to Christ was I saw this man, like God, like laying down his life for us. And you know, we're, we're looking at what's our state, what's Jesus worth, what does it mean believers? But that is the reason that Christ is worth giving our lives to. You know, like I said, there's no other religion where God lays down his life for others. And, and this is why God is worth our lives, is because he's willing to give up his glory for, for, uh, for our sake. And ultimately, it gave God more glory, you know. Um, but um, so... Um, that being said, I, I want to keep say land the plane here um, before we go too too far over. But um, so let's just kind of recap some of the big big points. So one, count the cost, right? Um, if you lost, you know, we're talking about the prosperity gospel, kind of like somehow like inches its way into our, our thoughts, even though we reject it. Um, if you lost all your savings, you go through a really difficult time, lose your job, you lose a loved one. Is that going to cause you to doubt God? Um, and, and that's just a question I think we can maybe just reflect on. Um, two, uh, you know, what's your prayer life like? Uh, are, we, are we asking just things for ourselves, or um, do we see it as an opportunity to submit to God's way? That's a, that's a, that's a real opportunity for growth and maturity um, in, in that. Um, and then three, you know, we, we, we face that same choice that James and John faced. Are we going to get into rule? Are we going to give and to serve? And, and um, I want to take a second, uh, just before we wrap it up here, is that, um, you know, research says that if I give you too many things to think about, you won't do any of them. So I just, I just want think about one person, right? Um, I, I think a family, family is like a really good place to start. Um, but as we go out, coworkers, employers, employees, community neighbors, friends, you know, and a lot of times in our lives, we hear the gospel and we accept it in like a theoretical sense, but it hasn't really like reached down into all the parts of our lives and all of our relationships. And so um, I, I encourage you to take a second, like your interactions with your children, with your spouse, with your parents, um, with coworkers or employees or employers, like do they have the love and the patience that Jesus had with his disciples? Because that would maybe just be a clue that maybe you're not serving them as like the gospel calls us to. And so I, I encourage you, and, and honestly, I just encourage you, think, right, if someone comes to mind right now, 
Maybe we could just trust that maybe God is bringing that person to mind, right? Take one person and think like, man, this is a person, you know, I, I'll just give a little example. Even as I was thinking about this, I, I kind of mentioned, mentioned it earlier. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher. I stay at home with my two girls uh, over the summer. And, you know, when they go, they have like at 2 p.m., they have their nap. It's just like such a glorious time. Um, and and my, my four-year-old thinks of every excuse to come out during that nap, every excuse, right? And I, I do not look like Jesus with the disciples. I look like Brian with a really angry face. Get back in that room and, you know, whatever. And, and so I, I just realized, man, I am, I'm not applying the gospel to my relationship with my kids in a lot of ways. I am, I'm looking to, like, serve myself. I'm saying, well, I need some me time, right? Uh, that's not, what, who, Jesus never talked about me time, and he rarely had any, right? Um, and so I, I just, I just want to encourage you all, think about at least one person who um, you can lay your life down, who you, maybe you, you haven't been serving, um, and you can take an opportunity. I think as we jump into those things, we'll find, um, we'll find that we're weak, we're failing, but it's in the midst of that failure and that weakness that we can depend on Christ and, and really, I think that, that um, grows us a lot in our relationship with the Lord. Let me, let me pray for us. Um, Lord, God, we just, we just thank you for your way, the way you set things up, God, that the way, the path to greatness is through serving. God, we thank you for how you've served us, how you instruct us patiently with care and kindness. You haven't turned away from us. You haven't sent us away, Lord. God, and, and like we sang earlier, we just want to be, we want to be like you, Jesus. Um, it's hard. It's the road, road that's maybe less, less traveled, God, but um, we just ask that you would give us strength and grace to follow you, um, strength and grace to walk in maturity, Lord, um, not because we're great, um, but because we just, we want to be about your business, Lord, we want to be transformed. Jesus, you're good. We thank you for who you are. God, um, come and move in us today. Encourage us, challenge us. Um, We love you.